Open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 17 this morning. It's great to be with you. I know I bring greetings from wintry Detroit. It took us 45 to 50 minutes to de-ice our plane last night. And uh, I know that some of you from the north, I just made you jealous. But uh, it's great to be here. I know you hear chapel guest speakers all the time say, it's great to be back and place means so much to me. And I want to say that as well, um, but in a very deep way, too. My family and I moved from here in 1994 to enter pastoral ministry, and we have drawn, I would say, every day, I have drawn every day on the training I've received here these 29 years of pastoral ministry. The roots go deep, and my appreciation is just as deep for this institution. I'm glad for what God is doing here right now. But, you know, even though I left here 29 years ago to enter the pastorate, I really never stopped learning. I would consider myself a, a student of shepherding, of, of pastoring. And, and I love pulling my chair up to the voices of pastors older than I am. Um, most of these guys are already in heaven. But I just love it. I love listening to older pastors teaching me how to do this. I'm still trying to figure it out after all these years. But I love counsel that I get from calloused shepherd hands. I love seasoned shepherds showing me the scars from the wolves, the bites from the sheep. And they themselves carry the the waft of sheep on them. One such pastor, an older gentleman who is in glory now, is one example in my life. And he wrote these words years ago. Listen to this. The world's worst prison is the prison of an unforgiving heart. If we refuse to forgive others, then we are imprisoning ourselves and causing our own torment. Some of the most miserable people I have met in my ministry, this man says, have been people who wouldn't forgive others. They lived only to imagine ways to punish these people who had wronged them. But they were really only punishing themselves. End quote. You know, I read that and it gripped me years ago. And I was determined as a pastor that I must understand this whole idea of forgiveness. I'm listening as these voices from the past speak to me. I've read a lot of books on on forgiveness that have been helpful. Jay Adams' book was good, From Forgiven to Forgiving. John MacArthur's book, The Freedom and Power of Forgiveness, stands on the shoulders of the Adams book. And then Chris Braun's book, Unpacking Forgiveness, stands on both of their shoulders. These are helpful texts, but I need to go to Scripture to find out a full theology of what it means to be forgiven or and to forgive. Now... The big text on forgiveness, the main one in my opinion, is Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. That's your primary text. That's the story of the unworthy servant forgiven an unpayable debt. It's a story told to Peter and other disciples who struggle to forgive. But we also see anytime the Lord teaches his prayer to his disciples... The Lord, we call it the Lord's Prayer. It's more accurately the Disciples' Prayer. He always emphasizes forgiveness, showing his priority of it. If you want a case study on forgiveness, you read the book of Philemon. If you want to see the undergirding of the the theology of forgiveness, you listen to Paul. In Romans chapter 12, he talks about how to return good for evil. 
and how not to be overcome by evil. And then in Ephesians 4.32 and Colossians 3.13, he says, forgive as you've been forgiven. It's that undergirding theology and this topic of forgiveness. It's so important. But there's one more main text in my mind, and it's the one your Bible is open to this morning. Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. Because it's here, words spoken to his disciples, that we find a short passage, shorter than Matthew 18, definitely, an often forgotten passage on the topic of forgiveness. But it's interesting, though it's short and forgotten, it contains all the necessary elements on the topic of forgiveness. And he's teaching us in this text that disciples forgive. And I think it's timely for us to spend a few moments this morning in chapel to talk about forgiveness and to get right after it. Why? Because there's a lot of bad stuff out there on forgiveness, even in conservative Christian circles. We're told that we have to forgive ourselves. I'm like, where is that in Scripture? Some people even advance the idea that we need to forgive God, which I would call heresy, and where is that in Scripture? Uh, We have people tell us that we don't have to forgive. We don't have to be concerned with this. Other people, other Christians might say, well, it's just the heart that matters. We just need to forgive on the heart level and not go face to face with people. Some people say, well, you just need to man up as a Christian and don't be so touchy. Others say, you just need to apologize, say you're sorry. And this is all bad stuff. I mean, we have to be honest with each other this morning. When's the last time that you or I have said to someone these words, I have sinned against you, will you forgive me? When's the last time those nouns and verbs came across your lips? Well, here in Luke chapter 17, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And I want to suggest this to you in the next couple of minutes. From this text, Jesus is going to give you this instruction. In this life, true disciples are to own the most thorough understanding and practice of biblical forgiveness. Period. You say, well, how, how do I do that? How do I do that? Well, I'm going to do it th- with three questions this morning with you. Three questions from this text. The first question is this, why must I fully understand forgiveness? Good question. Look at chapter 17 in the first part of verse 1. Then said he unto the disciples, it is impossible, but that offenses will come. Isn't that an encouraging verse for you this morning? I mean, it's impossible to go through a day, and some days to go through a five-minute segment, and someone doesn't sin against you. You say, well, why is Jesus highlighting this? For three reasons. First off, you live life in the minefield of a fallen world. That's what he's saying. Right off the bat in verse 1, you are living your life in the theater of the minefield of a fallen world. You see this word offenses here in verse 1. These offenses, these are... These are tripping points, as some of your translations may say. These are stumbling blocks. You're going to go through the days and it's impossible not to trip on something, is what he's saying. As a matter of fact, when we find similar 
wording in Matthew 18, it gets a little more intense. Matthew 18, 7. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. In our church in the Detroit area, I'm surrounded by a bunch of our men, several of them are deacons, who like to smoke. You say, smoke what? Smoke pork meat. They're just into it. It's like a cult. Uh, we'll be in a serious business meeting, and there they go again talking about smoking their briskets. And, their chi- and, and then they'll throw chicken in there. They'll, th- they'll throw anything. I've seen roadkill. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. It's not that bad. But these guys are talking on a level I don't understand because I don't do that. I use the microwave um, for stuff. But these guys are like, oh, no, you, they'll break out in little beads of sweat on their forehead talking about the perfect choice piece of meat. Or then they'll talk about, you have to have the perfect rub and sauce. You have to have the right fire. And then they get in debate, do we use pellets or regular logs? And that gets heated. And then you need time. And these guys will go on and on about the perfect ingredients for smoking pork. Well, what Jesus is saying here is that every day that you live and walk through, every day contains the perfect ingredients for sin's onslaught in your life. You live in a Genesis 3 fallen world, infecting a rebellious culture like Romans 1, of depraved people in Romans 3, colliding with your weak flesh that Paul says in Romans 7, Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Even as a Christian, I struggle with sin and being pulled into it. You live life in the minefield of a fallen, fallen world. You must know the theology of forgiveness. Secondly, though, Jesus says, Christians sin against each other. It's not just that the the fallen world sins against us. We sin against each other. Look at verses, uh, the beginning of, or the middle of verse 1 down to verse 2. He says, woe unto him through whom they come. He's talking to disciples. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged around his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. That's an interesting phrase, little ones. What are we talking about with that? Little ones means believers. Jesus has been using this language to describe you, to describe me, Disciples and believers already in this gospel. He did so in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, for example. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto me or unto babes, even as, even so, fathers, for so it seemed good in thy sight. He says, these are little ones. The people that are mine, the, 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 the redeemed, the, the disciples that are mine, Father, you've given to me are babies. They're little ones. He'll refer to them as little sheep as well. He's talking about Christians. And he's talking here about the very true reality, if you will, that Christians need to pay attention about to this topic of forgiveness because Christians sin against Christians. And you better take it seriously. He uses a word, woe, to describe you if you bring other Christians down into sin. This is, what does it mean to be woe? It means to be in a place that you don't want to be. It means you are not in an enviable position. Jesus had used, back in chapter 11, the same word, 
dealing with the Pharisees. The commentator Garland is right, I think, when he says there's no such thing as a Christian utopia of no testing, of no temptation. There's no perfect church. There's no perfect Christian campus. There's no perfect small group. There's no perfect circle of friends. There's no perfect parachurch ministry. There's no perfect setting with other Christians, but that you're going to have these collisions. Christians sin against Christians. Paul said in Romans 14, 13, Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. You and I can pull each other down by effectively discipling people in our lives of how to live a God-independent life. We can pull others down into sin by modeling bitterness or just modeling how we create distance from those who sin against us. We're hitched closely as the body of Christ. We pull each other down. So why do I have to own a knowledge of forgiveness? I live in a fallen world. Christians sin against Christians, but then thirdly, God's seriousness couldn't be any stronger than it is in this text. Look at chapter 17, verse 2. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. He's saying, you better figure this out as disciples, this whole thing of forgiveness. This whole thing of, of understanding that you can bring someone else, another brother, another disciple into sin. And he uses this picture of a millstone. And you had two types of millstones back then. You had a millstone that you could grind by hand to grind grain and such. But then you had the big millstones that had to be moved by a donkey or a, bird, a beast of burden. And he's referring to this bigger one. He says, if If you're the reason another disciple, another one of my little ones, goes off into sin, it would take a lot of men to pick you up with a millstone, take you out into the raging sea, and to drop you. You say, that's, wow, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of graphic. It's kind of extreme, isn't it? That's the point. Can you imagine a more horrendous ending? Jesus takes sin against his children seriously. And so he says in verse 3, take heed. Be, in other words, be on your guard. Hold your mind on this. In other words, get the theology down that I'm giving to you right now. You need to get ready to be ready to ask forgiveness and to grant forgiveness. By the way, Christ had already taught on forgiveness. You'll remember that back in chapter 11 of Luke when his disciples said, teach us to pray. And in that prayer, he taught the importance of forgiveness. You say, okay, I'm sold on why I must fully understand forgiveness. I'm living in a fallen world, Christians sin against Christians, and, and God takes this seriously. Second question, how must I forgive? How must I forgive? This is, this is what I love about Jesus. He just kind of lays it out there. He never speaks in the abstract. He speaks with concrete clarity to his disciples here in his word. He doesn't say, figure it out. You're left up to your best hunches as to how to forgive. No, he gives it here. And I I think the way to understand how to forgive is you just understand three words. First of all, the first word is occasion. Occasion. 
Look at the second half of verse 3. Here, here's how this starts out. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. Rebuke him. Now, you say, what do you, what do you, what do you mean by this? This, by occasion, I mean, what starts the whole thing? What starts this process of forgiveness? And the answer is clear, if your brother sins against you. You got that word, right? It wasn't your preference. He didn't, or she didn't do something against one of your personal preferences. He or she didn't assault your convenience. That's not listed here. It's, it's a sin against you. If you feel that you need to go to a brother or sister and start this whole thing of forgiveness, you better have a chapter and verse directing your steps towards them, not your personal likes. Now, there is one alternative to going to another brother or sister who has wronged you. You can either, you can either confront it or you can cover it in love and close the book. And you have several verses that give you that option. First Peter 4, 8. Have fervent love or fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Proverbs 10, verse 12, Hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covers all sins. Proverbs 17, 9, He that covereth a transgression seeketh love. In Proverbs 19, 11, A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook a transgression. The occasion is this. Someone has sinned against you. You can either move forward in approaching them, or you can cover it in love. As long as it's not a sin that's harmful to them, or a sin that has created seemingly permanent space between you and them. The second word you need to have in mind is the word transaction. Transaction. This is what, this is what steers the whole process, and you see it again in verse 3. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. I never played tennis on a team or for a school or anything. I was more of a contact sport kind of guy. My soccer team used to look for tennis players to beat up. No, just kidding. It wasn't like that. But uh, I, I, I never played, so I'm going to use it as an illustration, and, I, and that's as dangerous. But I've watched it before, and, and, he, and, and only one person plays the ball at a time. There's a serve, then there is a volley back, and then a volley, and then a volley, and there go the hours. You kind of have several volleys here. Volley number one is the rebuke. If he sins against you, rebuke him. Go to him to warn him. Go to, uh, to, to censor, if you will, but not with beads of sweat on your forehead, veins out of your neck, but you must do so with the Holy Spirit's fruit governing your words. Letting Galatians 6.1 set the tone, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. That's volley one, rebuke. Back over the net is volley two, that's repent. He repents, it says here in verse 3. If he repents, see, what does that mean? It just means naming the sin and owning it. You say you've sinned against me, and they say, yes, I did. I own that. I don't pass that off on you or anyone else or the, the, the Mexican rest, uh, restaurant I ate at earlier today. It's no one else's fault, but fault but mine. There's a repentance. And then there's a volley number three, and it goes back over the net. It says, forgive him. Rebuke, repent, and forgive. Just say, okay, you know what? 
You ask me to forgive you, I forgive you. And I promise I'm not going to bring it up to you. I'm not going to dwell on it in my own mind. And I'm not going to talk to other people about it. That's it. It's a transaction. Proverbs 17.9 says, He that repeateth a matter separateth very friends. And I would even say, if you bring up a matter that you say you've forgiven, you are the new offender. You are the new offender. But there's a third word you need to understand, and it's the word inclination. Inclination. Look at verse 4. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. What do you mean by inclination? I mean, this is what saturates your heart in this whole process. You do this, you do this, and you're willing to do it again. This would actually be the fourth volley. You have, you have rebuke, you have repent, you have forgive, and you have rinse and repeat as often as necessary. It's having a heart postured, leaning into the very people who wrong you, being willing to be reconciled, at the first opportunity. It's like holding out a handshake constantly to those who have wronged you. It's a legitimate offer. It's the posture of a heart, but they must reach out. You can't start this whole process of forgiveness, this transaction, if you will, on a whim. You can't steer it wherever you want. You can't saturate it with your personal vendetta. Can you hear the crickets? These three words, occasion, transaction, and inclination, leave you feeling vulnerable, don't they? The air is kind of tense. There's a dissatisfaction sometimes by your own definition of justice. And you feel helpless to obey. Is that right? No, because there's one more question and we're finished. How am I able to forgive this way? I mean, this is absolutely radical in the world's eyes. It is. I would even say it's impossible for anyone who isn't a disciple. Look at verses 5 and 6. And the apostle saith, said unto the Lord, increase our faith. Yep, I want to ask that too. I want to say that too. And the Lord said, if ye had faith as a grain of a mustard seed, ye might say unto the sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. See, what do you mean? I have to forgive like this. Understand just two things, and we're finished. You already have sufficient resources. That's what Jesus is saying in verses 5 and 6. You have sufficient resources. You have the faith, listen, that I gave to you. It's the, it's the size of a mustard seed, if you will. It's, that's the smallest seed in the ancient world. But it's powerful stuff. And you can even say to this tree, and it's literally a mulberry tree. This is an interesting tree. It had a vast root system. These trees could live up to 600 years and grow to, be thir- grow to the height of 35 feet. And there was a law against planting a mulberry tree within 37 feet of a cistern or a well for this reason. Jesus says, I gave you the faith you have. And it's powerful enough to pull up something 600 years old with 35 feet of, of, of height and a, and a root system that rivals what you see outside of the ground. And you can throw that thing in the sea. 
How many of the disciples would have said, that sounds easy? It's not the disciple. It's the faith that Jesus had given to them. He said back in chapter 10, verses 21 and 22, I reveal my Father to those that I desire. I've given you the faith. In essence, Jesus is saying, where's the faith I gave to you? Show it when you must forgive. This kind of faith will grow with time. And listen, it'll grow with each offense as well. You already have the resources you need. And secondly, you already have every reason you need to obey. See, what do you mean by that? Just as we close, look at verse 7. But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, when he comes in from the field, go and sit down to meet, and will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself, and serve me, till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. So likewise... When you shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done that which was our duty to do. You have every reason to forgive like this. Why? Because of the Lordship of Christ. This story of a servant who only had four jobs, this is a modest farmer in this story. The owner, the employer said, hey, um, take care of me before you take care of yourself. And then when you take care of me, do you want me to pat you on the back and say, great job? That's what you're supposed to do. This is a direct reference to the Lordship of Christ. You have every, listen to this, forgiving obediently is not impressive, but rather expected and natural under the Lordship of the One, listen, who has forgiven you. That's what he's saying. Forgive as you've been forgiven, Ephesians 4.32. Forgiving like this is an act of worship and love. Well, we are forgiven, and as the forgiven, we are given grace, our faith, and we are given identity. We're under the lordship of Jesus. And that's what enables you. That's what frees you to forgive Others. So we end where we started in this life. True disciples are to own the most thorough understanding and practice of biblical forgiveness. There's a couple yeah buts in your mind right now. Someone says, well, is the transaction distinct from trust? Yes, and Scripture will talk about that, particularly 2 Corinthians. What if the offender won't uh, repent? Or where does church discipline fit in? They're going to cover that in Matthew 18. What about offenses involving unbelievers? There's much about that, including Romans chapter 12. Someone will say, well, am I defined by the sin that others have committed against me, whether the transaction occurs or not? No, your identity is, as Jim Berg says, what God says about you. There are other questions on forgiveness that other texts will will complete this text with. But don't let these be your reason for refusing to obey the clear point of this text. At the end of the day, disciples forgive. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for the urgency of your word. Thank you, Lord, for the clarity and the weight 
and the freedom that brings this obedience. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.